What is up, City Fam? Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. A little bit of a, a snow day. Glad you guys chose to tune in. And I wanted to start today with a question. Uh, have you ever been in a situation where you just got busted? I mean, caught red-handed. There, there wasn't any getting out of it. It was over, a done deal. You know, maybe you got busted for speeding and got a ticket. Maybe you got caught in a lie and just confronted. There was no way out of it. Maybe your parents caught you sneaking out of your bedroom window at, at midnight. We've all had these moments, right, where we were just completely busted. It was over. No, no getting around it, no getting out of it. I have one memory. It's, I mean, probably fourth, fifth grade, let's say fifth grade in an English class. And the teacher had left, and a group of us noticed she left her teacher's uh, book on her desk. And this is the book that had all the answers in it. This is where our test was going to come from the next day. And so we thought we would steal some of the answers out of the book. And so we did. And all of us got 100s. And all of us got completely busted. <laughs> and I remember they had us out in the hallway, and we were lined up standing against this wall. And the teacher came to me and just looked at me and was just like, Brandon, I just, I just didn't expect this from you. And I, I'm, she said that the worst words anybody could hear, especially a kid that age, right? I'm so disappointed in you. And man, I was absolutely crushed. I mean, so much shame, so much guilt. And I learned my lesson. Or did I? I mean, I would love to say I never cheated on anything ever again, but that would be a lie. I mean, how slow are we sometimes to, to learn lessons? Some of us are quicker to pick up on things than, than others. But in this series we've been in, uh, going through the book of Daniel, the series called Kings and Kingdoms, it's kind of been a theme so far. God trying to teach Nebuchadnezzar lessons, and he's kind of slow to pick up on them. And so he has to kind of relearn things over and over. And now whether or not they learn from their lessons, we are in an opportunity now as we look back on history and read about them, we're in the perfect position to learn from their mistakes. And that's kind of why we've been in this series and going through Daniel verse by verse, because the book of Daniel, it's not just a historical book. It's not just about what did happen. It's about what's happening now and what's going to happen. It's about what always happens. And there's so much in there that can give us perspective and insight into what we're going through right now and looking into the future and what is to come to, to prepare us. Uh, we need to know how to survive as Christians and remain faithful in this culture that's just completely running from Jesus and completely uh, uh, just saturated with the spirit of Babylon. And so that's why we've been saying each week, now more than ever, we need the inspired Word of God. We need to know God's Word. We need more than just an inspirational Word. You know, inspirational words, they make us feel good. The, the Word of God, on the other hand, sometimes it doesn't make us feel good. Sometimes it can encourage us and make us feel good. Sometimes, though, it convicts us. It challenges us. Sometimes it's hard to read, especially when we start applying it to our lives, but it's, it's what we need. We can't rely on memes or devotionals or the verse of the day. We need a deep knowledge of the Word of God. And as I said last week, I've been challenged by this series. My group and I have enjoyed going through it. The group of friends 
that I, I get together and we we have a, a group called the City Group, and we watch the sermon. We read the, the chapter that we're talking about in Daniel. We have questions that I've written up that we all answer and think of ways that we can apply it to our lives. It's been huge. And so this is the part where I encourage you to get in a group. Um, man, we weren't made to follow Jesus in isolation. We all need people that we know and love and are pursuing Jesus with. That's how we were designed, to follow Jesus in the context of real community. So if you want to reach out to me, uh, you know, you can email the church. Uh, you can sign up on our app, get more information about groups. You can kind of see what groups are there. There's one that fits you, I promise. And even if there's not, I can help you start a new group. It's way easier than you might think, and I would love the chance to do that. So having said all that, let me kind of catch you up on where we've been so far in the book of Daniel. Uh, if you remember uh, Daniel and his three friends, a lot of other Jewish people were taken captive by Babylon. Uh, the Babylonian army destroyed Judah, and they have taken all these Jewish people captive. And you have God, who over and over has just been with Daniel and his three friends, just giving them favor and special abilities. Even, you know, Daniel's been able to interpret dreams from Nebuchadnezzar, and he's found a lot of favor. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we remember that story with the fiery furnace and how they were rescued from certain death when they refused to bow to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And then last week was kind of Nebuchadnezzar's final lesson as he was still so puffed up and proud and he has this terrifying dream and Daniel interprets it for him and he ends up losing everything, his power, his wealth, and his sanity. He ends up for seven years roaming the countryside and eating grass like a cow until he looks up and acknowledges the one true God and everything is restored. He finally submits and praises the one true God, Yahweh. So now, as we pick it up in chapter 5, it's been a few years since chapter 4, right? It's been 23 years actually since Nebuchadnezzar's death. And there's a guy now in power named Belshazzar. And uh, there have been several other kings between the two, a lot of drama, a lot of plots and assassinations and overthrows. Um, but now Belshazzar is in power. And there's some disagreement you know, when it comes to theologians on if there's an actual relationship uh, between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, like are they father-son or granddad or uh, related through um, marriage somehow, or maybe not even related at all. But either way, there are certain translations that refer to them as father and son. This is probably just kind of a, a loose term meaning predecessor and successor. Uh, but nevertheless, Belshazzar is now in power. And a spoiler alert, he's not going to be in power very long. So we're going to read. Uh, and I would encourage you, this, now's the time to get your Bible out, maybe a Bible app. You can open our app and open the message notes. It's a great way to, to read all the scriptures and all the points will be there. But these um, are not going to be on the screen. We're going to do a lot of reading, pretty much read most of the chapter. And so uh, let's get started. Chapter 5, I'm going to read only one verse, and then we're going to take a little pause. Uh, verse 1 says, Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. Now, this is a very interesting situation. There, there's so much going on behind the scenes that the writer of Daniel doesn't necessarily uh, tell us about. But we know from other sources outside the Bible, historical documents, some of the background information, and it, it's so, so fascinating. So you have Belshazzar throwing this huge 
celebration. And, you know, what was the purpose of the banquet? What was the purpose of this party? And here's what you don't know. At the moment of this party outside of the city walls of Babylon, the, the Mede and Persian armies are camping. In fact, the Babylonians had just suffered a crushing military defeat uh, just several days before. And now, you know, Babylon is the only city still standing and it doesn't look very good. I mean, the situation is bleak. So, so why throw a party at this point? Uh, was it maybe to like encourage the, the leaders, take their mind off of things? Maybe it's one of those things like, hey, let's party up, right? Because tomorrow we're probably going to die. Maybe it was a combination of all three, but nevertheless, they're tearing it up and, and the tension was palpable. It was a unique situation. And they're, they're all drinking heavily. And you have Belshazzar's wives and concubines and nobles are all there. And these kinds of parties would usually get a little bit crazy, right? A lot of uh, debauchery. Let's just say things would get a little bit immoral. <laughs> and so maybe it was the wine impairing Belshazzar's judgment. Um, maybe he was just trying to prove that he was the, the greatest king ever. Whatever the case here we are in verse 2, and he's already about to seal his fate. Let's read in verse 2. While Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. So they brought these gold cups taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. While they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Let's pause right there. Belshazzar now commits an incredible act of, of sacrilege against the God of Israel. And if you remember back in chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar, when they stormed Judah. They, they stole a lot of objects out of the temple. And these gold and silver cups were, were part of that. And so at the height of this party, he brings these, these cups in into this drunken, sexually immoral party so that him and his nobles, his wives, the concubines, they might fill them with wine, Right? And not only drink from them, but toast the pagan gods of Babylon. It doesn't seem like a very wise idea. Now, in verse 5, it says, Suddenly, suddenly, they saw the fingers of a human hand riding on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright, his knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. Suddenly, <laughs> suddenly in the midst of this weird party with all this tension in the air and all this immorality taking place, a, a deathly silence sweeps over the room. I mean, picture it. Belshazzar and his guest had to have quickly, um, you know, sobered up as the the hand appears and the, the finger starts writing 
on the wall. He's absolutely terrified. His legs go limp. He's in just in an extreme state of panic. So let me kind of summarize the next part for you. Once again, as Nebuchadnezzar did, if you remember in previous chapters, you know, he has this writing on the wall now. He doesn't know what it means. So he calls for his wise men, his enchanters, astrologers, fortune tellers to try to decipher the writing. And just like last week, do you think they were successful? No, they weren't. <laughs> the, the words would have been written in Aramaic, so probably these guys understood what the words were, right? They could read them, but they didn't understand the significance. They didn't know what they meant. And so they're kind of at a standstill. But it's then it says that the, the queen mother, who a lot of theologians think might be the widow of Nebuchadnezzar, right? She remembers something. This all sounded a little familiar to her, and she remembers what Nebuchadnezzar would end up doing. And she says, go get Daniel. Daniel, she says, has insight, exceptional ability, divine knowledge and wisdom. He was the one that was able to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. And so Daniel now at this point in the timeline is quite a bit older than he was. If you remember, he came in to Babylon as a teenager. He served Nebuchadnezzar for 30 plus years. Now it's been 23 years since Nebuchadnezzar's death. So you have Daniel, who's now about 80 years old. And he obviously didn't have the same high position in Belshazzar's uh, courts as he did Nebuchadnezzar's. Uh, Belshazzar didn't have a clue who he was, or at least he didn't remember him, right? So he finally brings Daniel in. We'll pick that up in verse 13. So Daniel was brought in before the king. The king asked him, are you Daniel, one of the exiles brought from Judah by my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar? I've heard that you have the spirit of the gods within you and that you are filled with insight, understanding, and wisdom. My wise men and enchanters have tried to read the words on the wall and tell me their meaning, but they cannot do it. I'm told that you can give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read these words and tell me their meaning, you will be clothed in purple robes of royal honor and you will have a gold chain placed around your neck. You'll become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. So pause. So first, Daniel comes in and Belshazzar kind of puts him down. Aren't you one of the exiles? Kind of trying to put him in his place. I'm king. You're just one of the, one of the captives. In verse 17, Daniel responds to him. Daniel answered the king, keep your gifts or give them to someone else. But I will tell you what the writing means. Your majesty, the most high God gave sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great that people of all races and nations and language, languages trembled before him in fear. He killed those he wanted to kill. He spared those he wanted to spare. He honored those he wanted to honor and disgraced those he wanted to disgrace. So I think this is pretty funny here. <laughs> you have, you know, Belshazzar trying to put Daniel in his place. Daniel responds, right, by reminding this dude about how great Nebuchadnezzar was. It's almost like you think you're, you're so great. Your, your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, was the greatest. And then he goes on to remind him of Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance and how eventually God humbled him. And he ended up, you know, remember, roaming the countryside for seven years, eating grass like a cow. 
And he was restored after he looked to heaven and acknowledged that it all came from God. It's interesting, right? Because whether Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar are related or not, uh, Belshazzar had to be aware of everything that transpired with Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, when the king of a city like this just loses it for seven years, completely loses his mind and then is restored, people probably talked about that, right? It probably made the paper. But either way, most likely, Belshazzar had witnessed this firsthand. He knew the story. Still, Daniel reminds him of it. And then, continuing in verse 22, Daniel continues, You are his successor, O Belshazzar, and you knew all this, yet you have not humbled yourself. For you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven, and you have had these cups from his temple brought before you, you and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. So God has sent this hand to write you this Message Daniel really lays into him. Why? Because this was a deliberate act of defiance against God's authority and power. Remember, not only blasphemy, but combining it with idolatry. I mean, he's gone too far. This blasphemy was inexcusable. Instead of glorifying God, he's purpose, purposefully denying him, defying him desecrating his holy things and using them to praise these false gods. Belshazzar knew that God had humbled Nebuchadnezzar, and it's almost like Belshazzar is saying, Hey, Yahweh, you might have humbled Nebuchadnezzar, but you will not humble me. It's a dangerous place to be. So what happens? Verse 25 This is the message that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. And this is what these words mean. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. And then parson means divided. Your kingdom is has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So his days were numbered, right? The end was near. He, he didn't measure up to God's standard of, of righteousness. He hadn't humbled himself. He hadn't asked for forgiveness. He hadn't asked for salvation. And finally, his kingdom, it was all over. God was about to divide it up among his enemies. And then in verse 29, then... Out at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in purple robes. A gold chain was hung around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom, which you'll find out in a second. doesn't mean a whole lot. Why? Because that very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed. And Darius, the Mede, took over the kingdom at age 62. Now, those last two verses... With only a few words, the writer of Daniel 
is reporting one of the most significant events in world history. The fall of the Babylonian Empire and the beginning of the Medo-Persian Empire. Again, we don't get a lot of this background from this particular chapter in Daniel, but again, there are a number of other historical sources that kind of supplement what's happening here. You remember we said before the Mede and the Persian armies were camping outside of the walls of Babylon. A couple of fun facts about these walls. There are two layers of walls. The, the outer wall was 17 miles long, about 25 feet in width, and rose to a height of at least 40 feet. So these, these walls were just too difficult to challenge. So what the, the Medo-Persian armies did is they diverted water from the Euphrates River. The river actually ran under the wall into the city. They diverted water away from it into this marsh so that the water level lowered, and they were able to wade into the river and under the walls of Babylon. Now get this. This is the, the craziest part of all of it. Greek historians believe that the city was invaded in the ways that I'm describing, under the wall. This was all going on during Belshazzar's party, the very party that he was toasting these false gods with the cups, the holy cups from God. And these soldiers were able to sneak under the wall into the palace where they found the king. He was holding a dagger, evidently about to kill himself. But the king and his attendants were overpowered, and the invaders, quote, avenged themselves upon the wicked king, which obviously means that they executed him. So that night, after the writing on the wall, Belshazzar, his kingdom was invaded. He was murdered, and the city fell without a single battle. It was over. The Babylonian dominance of the world was over, and Babylon was taken without any resistance. And then it tells us that Darius the Mede assumed power, and by the way, he was welcomed with open arms by the people of Babylon. Another important note, and I think we can put up this graphic for you. If you remember a few weeks ago, Clayton talked about one of the dreams. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of this statue where, you know, he had a, a, a head of gold and chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs were bronze, that kind of thing. This is actually, this, this, this event of Babylon falling is the fulfillment, the very first part of the fulfillment of this prophecy, where in Daniel 2, verse 39, he said, but after your kingdom comes to an end, speaking of Babylon, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise to take your place. So this was the, the very first fulfillment of that string of prophecy, prophecies. The, the Babylonian Empire had come to an end, and it took 60-plus years for that to come to pass. But, but God always does what he says he'll do. So what can we learn, <laughs> once again, from this story? What can we learn from Belshazzar and his mistakes? I think we can take away the same three things that were written on that wall. Here they are. First one is this. Our earthly kingdoms will be divided. Just like Belshazzar lost his kingdom, we will lose our earthly kingdom. We, we can't take anything with, with us when we go. And I'm not talking about not saving money or not leaving our kids inheritance or whatever. I'm talking about where our hearts are, what we're living for, 
what we prioritize. Because eventually we're, we're dying, right? And we can't take it with us. I'm talking about it as believers living for eternity, realizing how short life is. Psalms talks a lot about this, about how our life is just a breath. We're here and then we're gone. It's a shadow. Our lives are so short. And eternity, on the other hand, is forever. You might have heard of the, the rope analogy when talking about eternity. If you can imagine a, a rope that starts here and, and goes on forever. I mean, never ends. May, wraps around the, the, the earth over and over and over. No end to the rope. That's eternity. And our lives are just the first inch or so of that, of that rope in, in the timeline. Our lives are like this. I mean, in light of eternity, it's not even comparable. It's ridiculous. And then you think about how much just worry and angst and effort, like we, we pour into this life and give no thought whatsoever to eternity. We have to realize how short our lives are. Clayton talked about this several weeks ago about the idols we worship. You know, we worship the, the God of baseball and gymnastics and just stuff we own. You know, uh, your kids might be extremely talented, but do they know Jesus? Because mom and dad, that's, that's on us as parents. We got to be concerned with our eternity and their eternity, living for eternity. Like, what, what do you want your legacy to be? What do you want people to stand up and say about you at your funeral? What, what story do you want them to tell? Do you want to talk about, want them to talk about how hard you worked and how you had everything, your kids had everything they could possibly want? Or do you want them to talk about your love for Jesus? We got to get this, this one right. Our kingdoms are coming to an end. This, this life is coming to an end. And then it's eternity we got to start living for eternity. That should shift our priorities just a little bit, don't you think? So, our kingdom's going to end. Also, our days are numbered. Our days are numbered. You've heard the sayings, right? Your days are numbered and the writing on the wall. This comes, these sayings come from this particular story in the book of Daniel. It's saying the end is near, right? Eventually, it's over. And when it's over, it's too late. All of us will die. 100% of us are going to die unless Jesus comes back first. And when that happens, we will all stand before him and give an account. Genesis chapter 6 through 9. You remember the story of Noah and the ark, right? Genesis 6, 5 says this. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. Wickedness covered the earth, and it says it broke God's heart. So he leads Noah to the build the ark, put the animals on it, his family on it. People made fun of him. They ridiculed him. And then what happened? It started to rain. It started to rain, and eventually the door of the ark closed for good. 
Then you might remember from Genesis 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, another city just rampant with wickedness and sexual immorality. And you have these two angels there that come to visit Lot and they tell him, listen, gather up your relatives. We're about to destroy this city. And it says that Lot went to his family, tried to get them to leave, right? And some of them didn't take him seriously. His sons-in-laws, they, they laughed at him, thought he was joking. Finally, the angels grab Lot by the hand and literally drag him out of the city. And then what happened? It says, then the Lord rained down fire and burning sulfur. Now you might say, man, that's pretty intense, right? All this death and destruction. But really, really, it gives us a picture of what's to come. Our ultimate day of judgment. And it reveals the heart of God. Yes, justice is coming, but God wants a relationship with us, right? And he wants to give us a chance to do the right thing. Our days are numbered. One day, wickedness and evil and sin will be gone for good. All the wrongs made right. And on that day, it will be too late to try to get on the right side. On that day, God's ultimate judgment will come. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 says this. Then, it's describing the events that are going to unfold when the end comes. Then I saw heaven open. And a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except for himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword, to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh was written his title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. And then Matthew 24, Jesus himself is talking about the time when he will return again, when the trumpet would sound. He said that no one knows the day or the hour. He said, when he returns, it will be like Noah's day when people were partying and going to weddings and carrying on like, like nothing was wrong, like life would go on forever. But then the flood came, and it was too late because they were swept away. And he says, that's what it will be like when I return. And he leaves us with this warning. He says, keep watch, be ready you got to realize that the end is coming. You can't live like this thing's going to go on forever. And then Revelation 20 speaks of the great white throne of judgment and God seated on it and all the dead standing before him. They were all judged according to what they had done. And it says, anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The day is coming when you'll be on one side or the other. What are you going to say? When you stand before God to give an account for your life, what are you going to say? What are you going to rely on? What are, you, what are you banking on? And does that instill a little fear into you? Because maybe, maybe it should. Why? Because 
Here's the third thing. We have been weighed and don't measure up. We've been weighed and don't measure up. Just like Belshazzar didn't measure up. And just like, you know, you compare Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar finally, he bent the knee and he acknowledged the one true God. Belshazzar did not. He didn't measure up. And neither do we. We don't measure up to God's standard of, of perfection. We can't have a relationship with him because our sin separates us from God. So we have a problem. We have a problem. If we, we want a relationship with God here on earth, and especially if we want to be on the right side on that final day, spend eternity with him in heaven, we have a problem. That's why Jesus came. He came to the earth. He lived a perfect life. He was, he was the only one that could take our place. He was the, the perfect sacrificial lamb. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't possibly live. And he died a death on the cross that we deserve to die. As Romans says, you know, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. Like we were owed death because of our sin. But Jesus stepped in for us. He took our place. He took our sin upon himself. And it said that it was God's will to, to crush Jesus for us. God's wrath was poured out on, on Jesus so it wouldn't have to be poured out on us. So now if we have this opportunity to, to have a relationship with God, a, a bridge has been built between us and God and that's, that's the cross of Jesus because when he rose from the dead, he conquered the death, he conquered death, conquered the grave, conquered sin forever. And now we have an opportunity right here in this moment, in, the, in our lifetimes, in this moment, maybe for you, maybe you've never made this commitment. You have an opportunity to just, just take the gift of salvation that God is offering us. He, he's already done the work. We just have to, to take the gift, put our, our faith in Jesus, what he did for us on the cross, and acknowledge, you know, when I stand before God at the end, it's not gonna be enough to say, you know what, I was a pretty good guy. I tried to be a good dad. I tried to be a good husband. It's not going to be enough. He'll say, depart from me. I don't know you. But for those of us that have put our faith in Jesus, we'll stand before God on that day and he'll see the righteousness of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. Our, our sins were gone. I'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Guys, we're not promised tomorrow. Jesus could come back at any moment. Our lives could end at any moment. The time for playing games is over, right? It's time to get serious. Don't play around with God. Don't, don't be a Belshazzar. If you need to make things right with your relationship with him, now is the time to do it. If you're making a decision to follow Jesus, we as your church family, we want to know about it. We want to walk with you. You can let us know on our app, on the Connect form. But, man, we want to walk with you. We want to talk about next steps in your relationship with God. We want to get you in a group so you can walk and follow Jesus with other believers. There's no more important decision you can make today than, than that one. Let's get this one thing right. 
We want to be on the right side when it all ends. And so, kind of my final thought today is just living with this in mind. The end is near. The end is near. You can maybe picture a guy on the street corner holding the cardboard sign, right? Like the end is near. It's coming. It's a fact. Our days are numbered and we all have to wrestle with the question of what are we going to do with Jesus? As we just said, if you're an unbeliever, if, if you don't have a relationship with God, the answer for you today is follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. And if you're a believer today, for those of us that are, that are Christians, that are following Jesus, we need to share Jesus. We have the gift, right? It's time to, to share that gift with others. Live with urgency. You remember Lot and the angels telling him, we got, we got to go, right? And, and he left with them. He believed them, but he also grabbed and dragged out with him his wife and his daughters, people that he loved. He brought them with them. We need to, to live much the same way. It's almost like a lot of us are living life like we're on the Titanic as it's going down and we're just enjoying the music on the deck, right? Or we're worried about, is there going to be a wine selection on the life raft? We need to be living with urgency, going down to those lower decks and dragging people out with us before it's too late. There are people in your life that you love that may find themselves on the wrong side one day and then it will be too late. So it's up to us. We, we have the message. We're carrying the cure. We, we have what they need. Whether they think they need it or not, they do. And we are in their lives. You are in the lives of the people that you love and care about. You're in their lives for a reason. What are you going to do with that? I would encourage you to do this. Maybe take out your phone, take out a, a piece of paper or something, and make a name list. This is something all believers should be in the habit of doing. Make a name list. Write down two or three or four, or maybe six, I don't know, names of people that you love and care about, that your, your friends or family or neighbors, coworkers, whatever. And when you think about their relationship with God, you're not sure where they stand. Or maybe you know they're not believers. Write their name on this list, and this gives you a way to keep their name in front of you. So you can, number one, start praying for them that God would soften their heart. Uh, maybe you could start inviting them to church. We have one of the easiest churches to invite people to that I know of. I mean, we're not going to do anything weird to embarrass you or them. Invite them to church. You never know what God will do when, when they're here. Or maybe share Jesus with them. Maybe be praying for opportunities to, to speak into their lives, little, little windows of opportunity, a, a, a crack in the door where you can just start planting seeds in their life to get them to open their eyes to the truth. You'd be amazed what God can do through us as, as we're willing to be used by him. Just be a vessel. Just That can be your, your prayer. Make that name list. Keep it in front of you. Live with urgency. <laughs> Because our days are numbered. The end is coming. You know, it's easy for us to read these stories and be like, you know what, Belshazzar, man, he should have known better, right? He saw, what he saw what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He should have known better. Well, we should know better. <laughs> we, we have no excuse. We know the truth, and now we are responsible for 
the truth. God has revealed his heart to us. He, he wants a relationship with us, and he is giving us a chance to do the right thing. The time for playing games is, is over. Let's live our lives for eternity because eternity is forever. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word that we can read and learn and, and apply to our lives. And God, we, we, think, we thank you that it's living and active and it changes us, it challenges us. God, I pray that this would sink in, not just today, but tomorrow and the rest of the week, the rest of our lives, that we would figure out what it means to, to live for eternity, not just for the here and now. And what, what can I accumulate? But living for eternity, because we're here for, for just a breath and then we're gone. God, we want to make an impact for you. We want to make sure that we and our, our families, our friends, people we love, that we find ourselves on the right side when the end comes. Because we know we can't do it on our own. We know we're not good enough in our own power. It's only because of what Jesus has done for us, God. We, we pray that you would give us opportunities on this, this name list, God, to invite our friends to church and to speak some life into their lives and to plant little seeds. God, we can't wait to see what you do in the lives of people we love. We ask, God, that you work miracles. There may be some of them that we think are just too far gone. There's just no way. God, nothing is impossible for you. Nothing is impossible for you. So, God, keep us faithful to pray and to invite and to, to live in a way that shows the world that we follow Jesus and we are living for eternity, God. Make us a light in the darkness, a city on a hill that can't be hidden.